Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wickford. And this month, we have a special guest in the studio as well, the esteemed exoplanet astronomer, Dr. Maximilian Gunther. So welcome, Max. Hey, hi. Good to see you, folks. Uh, Esteemed is a strong word. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think it fits. So Max has spent a career hopping the Atlantic, really. So after an undergrad in in Texas, Max did a PhD in Cambridge, uh, working on the Next Generation Transit Survey, or NGTS. He then moved to MIT as a Torres Fellow, just as the test mission was getting underway, where he studied transiting exoplanets and solar flares, or extrasolar flares, I should say. Max also got a taste for the more astrobiological there, working on uh, suborbital chemical experiments. He then crossed the Atlantic one more time to go to SDEC in the Netherlands as an ESA fellow before transitioning to become the ESA project scientist for the CHAOPS mission. So lots to talk about there. Welcome to the show, Max. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I'm very excited. Big fan of the show. So let's get rolling. Excellent. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. So let's go way back, I guess. Let's start with NGTS, I think, because that was what you cut your teeth on in terms of an exoplanet astronomer. So tell us a bit about what that means, what that does. Yeah, absolutely. So NGTS was really my first embarking into the exoplanet field. NGTS stands for the Next Generation Transit Survey, a name that we often discussed and disputed and tried to find alternatives. I think it started off as a joke uh, long before I I joined the team. Uh, In the end, it stuck with us. (laughs) And it's, uh, it's our brand now. It's an array of 12 small, about 20 centimeter diameter telescopes uh, operating in the optical, a bit leading towards the near infrared in uh, the Atacama Desert, one of the highest deserts uh, on Earth in Paranal, Chile. So very close actually to the VLT and the new about to be built ELT. And uh, with that mission, we're serving uh, basically through the entire softened sky as much as we can, trying to find exoplanets that transit orbit around other stars. Um, It's basically the spiritual successor to the WASP mission and a little bit of a predecessor to what we now have in space with the TESS mission or what we had with the Kepler mission, etc. How has NGTS changed now that TESS is doing such a good job scanning the sky for planets? Yeah, it's a a really interesting time that we're living in because when a lot of the missions that are now operating were planned, basically there was not much happening, right? Some of the pioneering missions uh, were something like HATS, uh, WASP, Koro, etc., Koro in space. But then missions like NGTS, PLATO were designed from the European side, from basically ESO collaborations or from ESA side. And uh, from the American side, we had Kepler as one of the pioneering missions and then followed now by TESS. And with this, we really embarked on a completely new, basically gold rush of exoplanet discovery, where we have thousands and thousands of transiting exoplanets. I think when I started in the field, I don't remember the full number, but it was kind of like an order of magnitude less than it's now. And it's, it's crazy because uh, yeah, it changes so quickly. Now, the way NGTS and other surveys operate nowadays, where we have a lot of, I would say, friendly competition, but also collaboration with space missions that do these surveys, space missions like previously Kepler K2 and then now TESS and soon Plato, is that we're going into different niches. We don't just do blind surveys anymore over the entire night sky, but we're often then targeting this a little bit more to be complementary to what we're doing with, for example, TESS or what we will be doing with Plato. 
uh, one of the big niches there is to go after, and Hugh, you know that uh, I think best of, of all of us, uh, go after mono or duo transits or single or double transits where we have really long period planets and we're trying to find the third transit so we actually can pin down the period. There's a lot of aliases there. Some of these might actually be eclipsing binaries, so we need to really continue monitoring this. And only really the ground-based or the dedicated space-based missions like Cheops have the capability to go after these long period planets and have the flexibility to stay on them for longer. Uh, because with survey missions like TESS or previously Kepler or in the future Plato, um, they have more or less a predetermined sequence of where to look, uh, when to look where. And uh, that's, I think, like where we get a lot out of with uh, NGTS. Plus, uh, there's a little bit of other science that one can do. For example, you also already mentioned my interest in flare studies, stellar activity studies. There, it's a big advantage that we can have very short exposure times from the ground because we're not data transfer limited. Uh, we can really have five second, 10 second exposures and store all the data. And it's just a hardware limitation, but it's not so much a data downlinked limitation as we have for space satellites. So you've talked a lot about how the strategy is working. They're looking all over the sky or they're kind of targeting places where they're looking for these transit events. But what does your day-to-day -day look like as somebody who works then on those measurements that have been made by these vast, vast surveys? How do you pick which one you're looking at or fitting? Yeah, that uh, depends a lot on like which stage of your career uh, you're in and, and which um, <laughs> which aspect you're working on. Uh, so I can talk, for example, about NGTS. We have different working groups that are all uh, led by senior or mid-career, like experienced postdocs, sometimes also early career, early postdocs or even PhD student, yeah, working group leaders. And they basically rally up the team. They bring them together. They say, okay, what, what are we interested in? What do we want to go after? We're going to have vetting sessions, for example, looking through the interesting candidates. And then you go like really hands-on. So that's something I, I used to do for many years and I, I love doing. Uh, nowadays, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have that much time anymore for it. But in the beginning, when I joined the field, like you started with basically trying to write your own Python code to analyze these mm -hmm. because all the nice tools that we have nowadays, like Light Curve, like Exoplanet, Julia, and um, you know other transit-fitting suits that I won't mention by name here, uh, the <laughs> all these exist now and they're like widespread, they're openly communicated, they're published, everybody can send in GitHub requests, etc. But back then, you know, we kind of had to reinvent the wheel over and over again. I think that's also why many people in, in our generation then got really interested in learning more about Python, learning more about how to interact with GitHub, bringing the software out there so that the next people don't have to reinvent the wheel. And uh, you can also save yourself a lot of time because you're forced to have version control and you're forced to like keep documentation maintained. So that's a whole range of things that come in there. So again, just to sum it up in a nutshell, in the earlier stages, it's a lot of like hands-on, download the data, dig into the data, run your codes. Whether you want to focus on a single target will be a bit different than whether you want to focus on the entire demography, whether you want to focus on like the follow-up of an uh, exoplanet that you know, you picked out before or you want to have a, a study of like a thousand exoplanets and just find out their bulk properties will also be a little bit different. You can then employ like machine learning techniques, etc. But then as you like progress, I guess, through the career and you, you start leading working groups, you start becoming PIs of instruments and so on, those tasks will obviously shift a lot mm -hmm. and you start reorienting yourself. You start just looking more at the things behind the scene, like coordinating the team, but also a lot liaising with other teams. How do you 
for example, negotiate memorandums of understandings between your teams. TESS is a great example with the TESS follow-up working uh, teams and, and all the tremendous work that's basically been done there so that thousands of observers around the globe can contribute their data, but they also get the credit for contributing the data. You briefly mentioned there about how a lot of the day-to-day involves, you know, coding, involves modeling these these transiting planets. And I think we do have to mention the fact that you uh, you wrote one of these very well-used pieces of software for modeling transiting planets, which is Alice Fitter. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that can do and, you know, how you came about to, to write it? Yeah, uh, my pleasure. So Alice Fitter is one of those uh, that I mentioned and didn't want to mention before. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, basically it started off exactly like that. My journey through NTTS was a really remarkable one. I was, I was super lucky to, I think, be there at the right time, at the right place. I joined as one of the Lowe's first PhD students in Cambridge uh, shortly after he had moved over from Geneva. And that brought me into the NTTS consortium from the beginning. And it was fantastic because it was a very... Uh, young mission. We had just basically started. Uh, we hadn't even like installed the first cameras and CCDs and the, the telescopes mm. when I started. And I think it was just about three months after I joined. Like I had to go and like you know install hardware, spend two weeks in Paranal and uh, calibrate the CCDs. And I held like as a PhD student, I held like a twenty thousand euro CCD in my hand, and I was shaking. You know, <laughs> like oh god, if I drop this, what's going to happen? <laughs> I'm going to ruin this mission. So I started off with that. And that was really nice to see the things actually and touch the things that later take your data. And then it came more like towards simulational aspects. And then eventually after a year or two, we had the first data coming in. And I worked a lot on this data hands-on and I wrote a lot of code. And that's exactly what I mentioned earlier, this kind of progression where then you start building your packages you know, maybe you forget about it, but then like a month later, somebody asks you like, oh, at the last working group meeting, you showed that you, you know, download the data and then you like detrended it this and this way. Can you send me that code or can you send me the detrended data? And eventually, like uh, there's more requests of this coming in. And likewise, you request other stuff from other people to like deliver to you because you don't have the tools. And you start building up a shared base of code and you start maintaining it and eventually it's going to be much better if you actually train the other people on the code that you wrote uh, so they can actually reuse it and they don't have to write you an email and wait a week before you can reply and have time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, just a natural progression that happened there in the consortium. A lot of people like contributed to that. Lots of people wrote really amazing pieces of software. And then towards the end of my PhD, I kind of had to package all that together because I had to analyze a lot of different RV data, a lot of data from NGTS and other follow-up missions. I think Speculus was already involved there as well. And somehow analyze all of this at once. And that at once was basically the Alice, like the everything. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really kicked off. And I, I wrote that piece of code and I didn't really think other people would be that interested in it, to be honest. I, I thought, you know... I did that, but there's many other papers out there. People have already published hundreds of thousands, maybe, of exoplanet discovery papers. They all have their own code. And then it really, like, just, yeah, <laughs> hung around for a few months until I went to MIT. And as um, you said already in the introduction, at MIT, I joined again. I was super lucky. I think that's, that's the only only advice I can give is, like, be, be really lucky of where, where you are at which time. Because I joined and, like, the day I walked in, I thought I'm going to set up my computer. Um, I thought I'm going to, you know, maybe sign some documents, go home at, like, 2 p.m., uh, say, shake some hands, say hello, have a coffee with people, that's it. And I walked in, there was, like, basically our crisis meeting. Um, 
the day before we had the big data release, the first test data release, we, mm -hmm. our our team, like I wasn't involved at that day, had prepared like all this data, downloaded it, vetted it, looked at it, made sure the quality control is all good, and then pushed it out to the community. And then the next morning, the whole team came back together again after having probably worked until midnight the day before and sat in the, the meeting room when I walked in and they said, hey, we found some interesting signals in here. Uh, one of these was Pymensa, which uh, some of the listeners might recognize as our first, well, one of our two first test discoveries. And yeah, the, the team was already like looking at this data and thinking, we have archival HARP uh, observations, we have the new test observations. I think there was even some archival ground-based monitoring of this target. But how do we analyze all this together? How do we stitch this together? And I said, well, actually, I, you know, at the end of my PhD, I wrote a code that can do this. But... I didn't maintain it well enough. Like, you know, it was not applicable. <laughs> like a few months later, it was not well documented. Mm -hmm. I, I knew like everything worked, but there were things hard coded in there that just didn't apply anymore. I had to rewrite it. So I did my best in the end. Like it was faster for uh, Chelsea Huang, the, the lead author and some of the co-authors to actually stitch together their own code and run it. And basically a day later or so, like I had my code like up to speed and, and running to confirm the results. But that that kind of, you know, said like, uh, like triggered in me that like, you know, I wrote this massive code. I spent months writing this. It worked for like my PhD paper there. Mm -hmm. If I had just written it a little bit better, you know, if I just had made it more flexible, if I had just documented it, if I had just pushed it out to the community so that you can apply it to anything, because it, it doesn't matter whether the name is NGTS3 uh, or Pymensa, right? Like that should be a variable. You should be able to just change that out, upload a different data file, and it should just do the same job because it's the same mathematical operation underneath. So yeah, that bugged me. <laughs> that's why That's why in the, in the end I said, well, you know, I'm going to spend a few months now to make this nice and actually make it useful for the community because I saw more and more people got newly on board with this. More and more people jumped into the exoplanet field and they didn't need to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I think Alice Fitter as well is one of those which is a little bit more accessible to, you know, first year PhDs as opposed to some of the more detailed codes because you can use a GUI, right? You don't have to do so much fine tuning. Uh, Absolutely. It's kind of just yeah. there for you. So I definitely recommend that. Yeah. That was one of my main goals as well because my audience in that case was not people who have been in the field for 10 years and already or maybe longer and had their own Fortran codes or, you know, already wrote their own Python codes. My audience was really people who like entered the field new and people I would work with at MIT um, for studentships, for internships and so on. But also I wanted to bring this outside of the pure academic circle. And I've been very frequently going to high schools, sometimes even to kindergartens to <laughs> disseminate some science. Nice. And I wanted to bring something along that I can show. I wanted to make it a bit more act interactive and hands-on. So some of, I think it was even a few, even before the publication of the Alice Witter paper, um, just a few months after I had started at MIT, I went, for example, to one of my, my frequent outreach talks at a, a local high school in Germany. And I, I said, hey, this time I don't want to just give a talk, but I want to come a little bit earlier and any students that are around, I want to show you how to actually download the test data because it's public and then how to analyze it and how to find out how big that planet is, for example, what the period is and so on. And that's why I put a lot of effort into developing the GUI, the graphical user interface for Alice Fitter, because I wanted in the end to have a few sliders that everybody uh, can follow after watching a short YouTube video. 
The work that you did personally changed a little bit after that point. You started to focus in on flares uh, in the light curves themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that and how do we see or know that a star is flaring? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I have probably a very short attention span. That's why after <laughs> writing Alice Fitter and writing my first plant discovery papers, I kind of thought, oh, okay, what's what's next? What's interesting? And actually, that's what brought me to MIT. I mean, on the one hand, I wanted to use everything I learned from NGTS, from a ground-based survey, uh, and apply that to TESS, which is a space-based survey, because um, in the end, you know, the methodology is exactly the same. But I also thought that like with TESS, we have a huge opportunity. And that was very hugely inspired by uh, my colleagues and collaborators back in, in Cambridge, where I did my PhD, in particular Paul Rimmer and others, who looked a lot into like the astrobiology process, into like prebiotic chemistry, how that is related to the input that the stars give in terms of UV radiation onto their exoplanets uh, in the in the early years. And Paul, together with a lot of other colleagues in Cambridge, had written just about that time when I wrote my applications for MIT, a fantastic paper that looked into, you know, can stars provide enough UV energy to trigger prebiotic chemistry? Just in, in theory. I mean, there's many pathways and this is not necessarily the pathway to, to life, right? But this is one of the potential options that are worth exploring. And right now we know nothing. We're taking the baby steps. So they wrote this paper and that was basically at the right time. I, I talked a lot to Paul at that time. And uh, that was what inspired me in saying like, hey, you know, we can do this with NGTS, sure. And lots of my colleagues have been working on that and very successfully so. But with TESS, we also have an opportunity because there we have a mission that's focused on the nearest red dwarf stars, the nearest M stars, so the ones that are half the size, a third of the size of our sun, much redder. Uh, TESS is red sensitive and it has a high cadence with two-minute exposure times. And some of these flares take, you know, from 10 minutes to hours. So we can do a whole demographic study of hundreds of thousands of stars across the entire sky over a couple of years and really demographically probe that we could have never done before because even... I mean, Kepler, fantastic, one of the biggest fields of use at that time, but it's still limited to more or less faint stars um, because we're just staring in one direction. Mm -hmm. So we go very deep, but we don't pan through the entire sky. And before Kepler, it was really usually samples of dozens of stars, right, with ground-based instruments, big ground-based instruments that cannot look at so many stars at once. So that's what really drove me because I thought that's a really cool, unique angle that we can now take with TESS. And I think it paid off. I think the community also got very interested in these type of things uh, at the same time as I did. And there's been a lot of fantastic work in that regard that's been made possible by this high cadence all sky survey. Yeah, because I, I guess maybe from the astrobiological perspective, it was always thought you know, that lots of flares were potentially de deleterious to life, but the, considering the prebiotic you know, synthesis of, of molecules, that would be important for you know, potentially making that, that step. Perhaps the pendulum swung back the other way, and I guess that works well given that uh, as these stars age, they tend to be a bit less flary as well, so we might have um, you know, a temporal cadence that works out fairly well for, for life there as well. Yeah, that that's one of the really big points that really fascinate me. That's like a double-edged sword, you know. Mm. You, you don't know, and it's it's not a black and white question. And before, you know, everybody said, oh, it's impossible. 
And then I think maybe in, in my paper or other papers, people read those a bit too positively and said, yes, absolutely, we need to be there. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's not the message I intended. Maybe I miswrote it, I don't know. But the message I intend is like, we have to look at all the options and like keep the entire spectrum in mind and not see this as like a black and white question. Like we have to evaluate really also, you know, that this is not the only process, right? We might have icy moons where the ice crust like or icy planets icy moons in our solar system like enceladus europa and so on where the ice crust might just shield all the radiation you get from the star but you have hydrothermal vents underneath and these hydrothermal vents are also one of the potential triggers for life like on our earth it's still debated what's the the origin of life on our earth and that i think that's the lens through which i'm looking at these things is just kind of do a demographic or probability analysis of how many are out there and how unique is our Earth in comparison? You know, like our sun always put out enough UV energy, but we also had hydrothermal vents. We can not really time travel back, but we can like dig out st samples. We can like have different methods to deduct what happened there. But it's a, it's a really challenging field. Uh, as, as I have very limited understanding on that, but my astrobiology colleagues say that's a very <laughs> challenging field to really figure out what triggered what. And there's a lot of dispute in the community. And I thought, you know, what can we do? Like, I can't even travel to Enceladus in Europa and probe hydrothermal vents. I can't travel to an exoplanet and probe hydrothermal vents. I can't go there and probe other delivery mechanisms like exocomets or stuff like that, you know, the panspermia theory. But the one thing that we can probe readily is the stellar UV output. Not fully readily, I have to admit. I mean, <laughs> what we do there with TESS, right? We have an instrument uh, that's sensitive in the optical to near-infrared we don't have the UV information. So that's something I've been pushing for for a couple of years. I haven't been very lucky, but lots of my colleagues who are also interested in these things have been lucky of getting multi-wavelength observations, of calibrating our basically Rosetta Stone to translate from what we get from TESS and Kepler and other missions over into the UV regime, like maybe around 250 nanometers or so that mm -hmm. really triggers or destroys life. So was it your interest in astrobiology that led you to these suborbital chemistry experiments or was it because you wanted to ride on the vomit comet? <laughs> <laughs> I can neither deny nor confirm that. No, um, <laughs> it's a cool question because I take one step back. Namely, I my whole trajectory leading up to the exoplanet point where I joined NGTS was very zigzag. Um, I, I come from like a tiny hamlet basically in, in southern Germany. None of my parents were like academics, so I was like, not really predisposed to exploring that much and changing countries that much, but maybe that's exactly why I wanted to do it. So I hopped around a lot and I changed my focus a lot. I started off with doing pure physics, a bit more focused on solid state physics, but then I got really interested in astrophysics and biophysics. And for my bachelor thesis, I looked at black holes and X-ray radiation and mega masers around them and so on. And then I switched over to the US for the first time. And that's been now like, that was 2012. Yeah. So about, what is it? 11 years ago. <laughs> that was the first time like I had left Germany fully to like live abroad. And that was also the last time I lived in Germany since <laughs> pretty much. And <laughs> I went for two years to, to Austin, Texas. And there I um, studied biophysics because after working on black holes, I loved that. I loved the astronomy field. I loved the big collaborations and the worldwide teams on telescopes. But then I wanted to get a taste of biophysics because it was the other field that really interested me. And I studied uh, fruit flies and I <laughs> studied how they look for, how their larvae look for food and whether you could like, you know, have phenotypes that represent 
something like Alzheimer's or Fragile X syndrome in those fruit flies and how that changes their foraging behavior. And then I came back to Europe and I didn't know what I want to do. I knew I wanted to go for a PhD. I considered many countries in, in Europe, but I didn't know if I want to go back to black holes, which I really loved, or if I want to stay on biophysics with fruit flies or any type of disease research. And then I discovered exoplanets in doing like uh, my you know research on where to go. And I saw that Didi had just come to Cambridge and I thought, oh, you know, that, that's a cool opportunity. I applied to lots of other places as well. In my applications, I was still very wishy-washy uh, what I want to <laughs> do. I, I, I often wrote my applications as like, I'm really interested in black holes, but also fruit flies. I'm happy with anything. <laughs> but in the end, it was the conversations with the exoplanet scientists that really linked it together. That's where my, my peak interest in astrobiology then came from. Uh, and even though I wasn't a trained astrobiologist, because at that time and even nowadays, it's impossible to be a trained astrobiologist. It's such a <laughs> multifaceted field. Um, that's where it started. And then it has this natural progression through like, you know, finding planets, discovering them, characterizing them, finding out about their atmospheres, doing them the flare studies. It kind of always led towards this one track, even though it seemed very zigzag and, and switching. And then again, coming back to your question after this long step back, sorry. <laughs> but um, again, I guess I can only say like uh, my best advice is to to be out there and look for opportunities and try to always be at the right place at the right time. I guess that the more places you are, the higher the chance is that it's the right place at the right time. At a wedding uh, of just some friends that I completely spontaneously met through other friends uh, while living in Boston, they introduced me to another researcher from MIT and she worked in the MIT Media Lab, which at this time I thought, you know, does TV interviews and media releases and podcasts. That That's not true. <laughs> I guess I found out later it's a giant think tank. It's basically like Tony Stark's, you know, tower in, in Iron Man. And like everybody in there is a absolute brilliant genius and they work on like the craziest things and they focus a lot on space research. Uh, so my friend uh, Valentina Simoni, she told me, well, at this wedding even, about uh, that she frequently goes on these vomit comet flights and does these parabolic experiments to test exo-human skeleton and how like astronauts could basically get better balance and so on in space. I said, wow, this is incredible. Like, you know, and she asked me, what do I, I do? And I was like, oh, I got really interested in these prebiotic chemistry questions, da, da, da. I wonder if they like would work, you know, on like super earths, if they would work on little comets, uh, if they would work basically from zero G to like two G. And she said, oh, just propose for an experiment on the parabolic flight. And I'm like, you can do that? You can just like go and propose <laughs> for an experiment? And she's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The next call is open in like two weeks. Just go. And I think like, two weeks is impossible. And, um, you know, what do you do Like, if you have no idea about what, uh, what you can do and want to do? Well, I reached out to people who know that. So I reached out to my colleagues in Cambridge. I reached out to my colleagues at Harvard and MIT who all work on this. So Paul Rimmer, for example, I mentioned before, Sukrit Ranchan. Janusz Bitkowski and uh, Sarah Seeger's group. And yeah, I basically asked them all, like, what can we do there? Like, I have to write this proposal in, you know, now two weeks. How do we uh, get this done? And they said, well, you can't put a prebiotic chemistry experiment up there. You know, they take an entire basement in our lab and they're super dangerous. You don't want to put formaldehyde with 30 researchers onto a woman comet plane. <laughs> but uh, what we could do is just go for a proxy, you know, just get experience, play around with the gravity, how it affects the chemistry. The hypothesis is theoretically we don't think it will affect anything. But there's been one or two surprising results that previous NASA experiments on parabolic flights that showed actually the gravity changes and changed like how well it mixes, uh, mixing ability. And yeah, so it's worth worth a shot. We have a null hypothesis and nothing changes, but 
let's try it. So we picked that Briggs Rauscher experiment, which is a high school experiment where you just put together two or three fluids and they change between blue and yellow, blue and yellow. And it's perfect because you just monitor it with a GoPro. <laughs> you check how quickly it changes and you relate it to a sensor that measures your gravity. And yeah, so that's the long story. <laughs> the short story is I really wanted to vomit on the comet. <laughs> <laughs> and did you? Is the question, right? <laughs> That's what we're all waiting for. Yes, it's been the sickest I've ever been in my life. <laughs> wow. I'm going to change tacks uh, quite dramatically now because uh, since then you've come back to Europe and you're in the Netherlands and you are the project scientist for Chaos. Uh, which is a European Swiss-led mission. Can you tell us about Chaos? I don't think our listeners have really heard very much about it. So give them the details. Yeah, absolutely. So Chaos stands for the Characterizing Exoplanet Satellite. It's a mission that was launched in a partnership between ESA and the consortium, the consortium being led by Switzerland and supported by 10 other member states. Uh, back in 2019, actually around Christmas on the 18th of December 2019, so just before COVID hit, mm. and uh, that little just before COVID hit is a, is a good indication because we did our commissioning in March 2020, just when COVID hit. So the whole commissioning of this mission, the whole mission operation center was all done from home office. And that for a mission that's been kind of a little bit of pioneering one and that uh, a lot of responsibilities lie with the consortium and are not handled by the teams in ESA. So, for example, the mission uh, we have a consortium mission manager and a, a leadership team in Bern, a science operations center in Geneva. Uh, we have the mission operations center handled by Inter in Spain. So it's an interesting thing to kick off all of that, you know, basically from your bedroom with like limited internet and everybody fighting for toilet paper. But um, to come to the scientific point, well... We are a mission designed to follow up already known to exist exoplanets. So completely different from what we were doing with NGTS and what we were doing with TESS or what we were doing with Kepler or had been doing with Kepler and K2. It was like a, a real like shift into a different direction. Before you only had huge ground-based instruments, you know, maybe a two, three meter, four meter telescope on Earth that can get these precisions to follow up these type of super Earths, for example, that Kepler and Tess had found. But now with Keops, we have that in space and we have the flexibility of any of these ground-based missions and that we do like weekly observation scheduling, for example. So we can very swiftly point Keops at the most interesting targets that popped up. If Tess, for example, now has a target of interest, a TOI alert, Maybe in two weeks we can already look at that and we can try to find its exact period, its exact radius. We can try to confirm that. And that is really a, a big novelty. It's, it's basically something that people before had used Spitzer and Hubble for, mm -hmm. which Spitzer is unfortunately no longer. Hubble time is very expensive and very hard to get. And it's not focused on exoplanets. You compete with the entire astronomy a community because somebody else might want to see, you know, a supernova explode or might want to see <laughs> a, a black hole up close or something like that. But here with Keops, we have really this instrument dedicated to the exoplanet community. We can also do other interesting things. People are studying, for example, flares, stellar variability, things like that, spots, faculty. But um, it's really a, a big shift to have this flexibility and have such a power in space. And now, well, I'm still sitting here, so we've been operating successfully for three and a half years. And uh, many thanks also to you know the entire team that built up this over the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, the entire team that proposed this and had run this also from ESA side, because I'm a fairly new 
uh, in this role. I started last November, so it's coming close to my anniversary. And I took it over at an interesting time where we started, you know, like the, the, we had the first two and a half years of operations. We had lots of success stories already, lots of interesting science. And we started thinking about or already we're in the middle, actually, of the proposals and the reviews and the negotiations for mission extension. Mm -hmm. And now in March this year, on the 7th of March 2023, the science program committee confirmed that we get a mission extension until end of 2026, which is much longer than we had initially hoped for at launch of the mission. Initially, we thought about, you know, one and a half years. Now we got uh, 3.25 years extra. And already an indicative second mission extension until end of 2029. Wow. So Keops might still be on Sky for a very, very long time. So if you have not yet proposed for any observations with Keops, I highly encourage you to do that. We have the information on the website. You can contact me at any time. I guess that might be my next question was maybe we could you could speak generally about the difference in organization between missions in the US and at ESA and, and Keops. I know it's, it's more of a Swiss-led mission, but also in terms of like the guest observer angle with things in terms of proposing proposing time for the different telescopes. So quite a lot within that question, but hopefully something you can unpack. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a really interesting question. I think also one that's very burning and one that, you know, two years ago before joining ESA, you always hear about, oh, like if you're if you're there, you like learn so much about how things work. And I thought like, ah, that's that sounds, you know, like a superficial thing. But now like after two years and I say, yeah, like what I've learned, you know, over coffee and like just being there, like you you, you absorb so much information that really changes your whole point of view. Mm -hmm. um, the structure is completely different between NASA and ESA, for example. You know, NASA, you have one country, you have the US. It's a, a very, how to say, streamlined process. Like the president of the US gives the power or gives the directive to the head of NASA and they can implement it. They have their budget and it's more or less centralized in that sense. Sure, there are complications. It, it's a very, you know, first order approximation what I'm doing here. There's a lot of complications because there's also every state has their own, uh, or many of the states have their own space agencies or interest in science and they all have their own uh, yeah, agendas and interests they want to go after. But overall, it's still one nation. Yep. Versus ESA, right? Like we have, <laughs> we have all these member states, we have associate member states, we have partnerships with, for example, Canada, with Japan. Making everybody happy is, you know, the big goal of such an organization. And obviously, it's never possible to make everybody absolutely 100% happy in any type of such, yeah, human, so like, uh, like coming together, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of a bit comparable to like a democracy, right? In the end, you vote on things, you have to find agreements, you have to discuss. Party A, for example, is really interested in this science goal. Party B is really interested in this other science goal, you know, maybe like, say like country A is really interested in black holes, country B is really interested in exoplanets. Where do you find the balance? How do you structure all this? Who pays how much for what is a really interesting part. And then in the end, also, do you have the expertise to actually push these missions out? You know, some countries have more expertise on, for example, the hardware side. Others have more expertise on, say, the data archive side. Others have more expertise mm -hmm. on the science exploitation side. You have to constantly optimize these things. So while people often, you know, how to say, look a little bit pessimistic on, on our time scales in, in ESA, and uh, I have to admit, you know, having worked like with NASA and with TESS uh, before, I also always often thought like, oh, why does, for example, the development of this particular mission take so long at ESA? 
But once you're like in there and you see actually like that this works and that you get all these people together to get them talking, you know, 50 years ago in Europe, this would have been impossible. Like we were always very split up in different nations. And then like we formed, you know, the EU at some point, we formed organizations like ESA, we have ESO for the ground-based instruments. And it's, it's really marvelous that we're like growing together so much and unifying so much. And there's always a trade-off, right? For that, like, okay, some discussions take a little bit longer. Some people don't get what they want right now. They have to wait a few more years. But in the end, it's really the constant dialogue that I think is is absolutely fascinating. One more anecdote to that. Uh, I think also one thing that that from the outside community is often not so clear is that you have a lot of power in Europe to decide what goes on with ESA and how things work. For the science directorate, for example, we have the science program committee, right? The one that this March allowed KOPS to go on for an extended mission of another 3.25 years and potentially even even 6.25 years. And in this science program committee, there's at least like one representative from every member state of ESA. And these representatives, they're known to the community. And if you're a PI or if you're, you know... professor or even if you're like any researcher in that country say like for me i'm a german you know the the representative i can look them up i can contact them maybe i'm even at the same institute right i can just talk to them and say hey these and these things would be really interested and then you get your community i mean it's on a one one to one basis that's not gonna be so successful but you get your community together at conferences you organize workshops you know your whole nation is really interested in this particular topic well you know you write proposals you write white papers you produce the science behind it and then you bring it forward to the delegate of your country and likewise you liaise with your colleagues in the other country and they bring it forward to their delegate and then all these delegates meet on a regular basis decide on the budget decide on the the coming programs and basically inform ESA and then we're executing this decision to the best that we can and we're trying to find ways to work within the budget how much can we make possible can we you know run all these like five missions that the different communities want or do we need to combine two of them or do we need to cancel one and we look at like all the technical feasibility we look at yeah basically everything from like budget to technical uh, to to science output but the really the the impulse comes uh, kind of almost like roots up, you know, to the top mm-hmm. and then down down again to ESA. And I think that's something that's that's really fascinating because there's a lot of power in the scientific community. And I think that's something that's not appreciated enough or or maybe not not seen enough in, in my point of view. Uh, many people are not so aware of that. Many people think think like, oh, ESA makes this decision on doing A instead of B. It's like it's not that black and white again. It's it's very much more nuanced. So it is that kind of wrap up time of the show here where we kind of spin you back to research a little bit and back to your roots of finding planets. And we ask our guests to adopt a planet into our Exocast family. So have you got a favorite planet that we can add to the cohort? Oh, that's a good question. You know, the politically correct answer is no. All of the planets are fantastic, oh. but the <laughs> the course, honest answer is TOI two seventy is my you know my go to always. It's been uh, not the first system I had I had discovered by far, but it's been my favorite system because again this this is one of the ones where I, I just love the the story behind how it came to be. I, I was at MIT. I 
worked on with PyMensa, many other programs. We had just kicked off, you know, TOI270 was found in the third sector of test data. Mm. So as part of the vetting teams and so on. So that's the third month of observations, exactly, essentially. Exactly, the, the third so month right of observations. Right at the beginning of the mission. And I had like my Alice Fitter kind of ready at that point. I wanted to embark on the flare question next. And I had my colleague Chelsea Huang literally just walk into my office, uh, you know, after coffee or something and say, oh, we found this really interesting target here in sector three. You're interested in, you know, like astrobiology, small stars, flares and small planets and stuff. And I was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, you know, I'm working on a flare paper right now. Said, oh, this one is, you know, a small red star with three little planets around it. Um, the, the outer one looks pretty cool, uh, as in like temperate. And, you know, maybe you want to have a look at that. And I was like, oh, I'm like, you know, I already have to focus on that flare paper. Oh, I don't know. Okay, like I'll, I'll have a look later. And I looked at it and I said, yes, I, I need to go after this one. <laughs> like this, this is exactly like the kind of like, you know, number one priority target that test set out to, to look for. A bright nearby M dwarf, three small planets that we can't discover any other way, possibly more planets hiding there. They were in mean motion resonances, which means they perform this rhythmic dance that lets us calculate their masses. But they were also, the system is also bright enough to capture the radial velocity, uh, which then collaborating teams and colleagues uh, have done. Uh, one of the study, for example, led by Vincent van Eylen, um, came out together with our TTV study that was led by Laurel Kay from, at that time in, in Oxford in the UK. And it's just a, a goldmine as well. Like you, you keep digging and you keep finding interesting things. And then we had, you know, Hubble proposals. Uh, we're trying to dig into the atmosphere and nowadays uh, preparing like for JWST proposals. It would just be nice, you know, if you had more missions like Keops, but uh, mm -hmm. basically where the exoplanet community has to dip on it. And uh, we can uh, we can actually go after it without writing so many proposals, but we can just go after it. That would be nice. But yeah, TOI 270 is my, my long answer. <laughs> and uh, it led to some very interesting uh, outreach and art collaborations as well, which uh, I'm quite fond of. Yeah, we were going to highlight that. You've collaborated with your wife, right? On a, on a <laughs> Kandinsky-inspired piece of art that you can see on Max's website, and I recommend, recommend checking that out. So um, tell us about you know producing that. It's very, we might often think as, of science and art as being these two sides of the spectrum, right? But this is the collaboration between the two. What can, you know, uh, your process about creating that piece of artwork and maybe how art can help us with the outreach and understanding a little more of the, of the complexities, the emotive complexities of exoplanets to, to a bit of a wider audience? Yeah. Um, so again, to just take one step back. So my wife was actually kind of the inspiration for that because uh, when we met in, in Cambridge in the UK, she was a well neuroscience PhD student and she loved art. That was her, her passion, you know. And neuroscience was her also her passion, but her, her job passion. But her free time passion was art. And she worked on collaborations with artists and on like creating outreach events, creating events where they brought one artist and one neuroscientist together. And the artist listened to the neuroscientist blab on about their science and tried to bring this somehow in some artistic form out, like with a media installation, with like, you know, oil painting on canvas any a sculpture, anything they could think of. And I went to like these yearly exhibitions that she organized there and it was just mind boggling that, you know, this is possible and you can do these things. I mean, in astronomy, we're very privileged because it's one of the most beautiful things you can look at. So people just, you know, often put just a Hubble picture or a JWST picture up there and say, oh yeah, this is now our outreach. But they're actually, you know, neuroscience is, is trickier. <laughs> you, you have to like kind of sell something you can't really see with the human eye. 
So it's incredible to have these artistic views. And when we had the TOI 270 publication, Nature Astronomy asked me to hand in a, a cover suggestion for for that edition. And frankly, like it was probably a, a stupid decision, but I thought like I don't want to have just a normal animation that you always see everywhere. I, I want to do something different. So I asked my wife, uh, you know, what can we do? Like, how can we kind of make this completely different? And uh, well, she loved uh, different artists and Kandinsky was one of them. And she said, oh, that would fit really well, that style. I'll try something. And then uh, I think it was a week later or so, she came to me with that with that oil on canvas painting or acrylic on canvas painting. And she's like, here, I, I painted this. What do you think? I was like, it's insane. Like, this is so cool. So I scanned it in. I pumped it up a little bit in Photoshop uh, to make the colors pop uh, even more on, on the screen. And uh, yeah, that's how it came to be. And I submitted it to Nature Astronomy and... Unfortunately, it didn't win the competition for that uh, cover art. Uh, it was a bit, uh, possibly a bit too much out there, but um, I still, I still hold it dearly. That's such a wonderful story. I, I love every part of that, <laughs> uh, of that collaboration. That's, that's fantastic. What a great choice for for a planet as well. Yeah, we like on on the show to have the adopted planets that have a bit of a, you know, a human story behind them, right? The discovery story or something else, and and that was just a, few, a perfect example of a, of a great system. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. And hopefully we can, with your permission, of course, showcase that on the website for this yeah, episode and share that beautiful image of your adoptive planet. So thank you. I could definitely be our featured image without, without a doubt. We don't need to vote for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honoured. Thank you so much. And with that, it's the kind of the end of our show there. It's been really, really fantastic talking with you. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. One thing I want to say, you know, mm -hmm. everybody out there listening, I guess the take home message is just always look for different opportunities. And, you know, I, I talked about success stories, right? But all of these have like 10 failure stories before them. Like try out different things. If it doesn't work out, try out something else. But stay consistent with your own vision and, and mission, right? Like go after what you're interested in. For me, it's it's been the science solving the puzzles, but also bringing that to like a broader audience and especially to younger aspiring students who don't have the the opportunities, usually, mm. you know, people from underprivileged backgrounds, etc. And I think, um, yeah, that's one of the most interesting parts about this job that you you have such an such a impact on on society by sharing what you find there, the really cool stories and and also the teamwork you have in your own missions. It's just always inspiring. So if anybody out there is, you know, struggling and, and think not knowing like if they want to pursue this or how to get into astrobiology and stuff like that, you know, contact me. I'm happy to help. Thank you so much for that kind of inspiration there at the end as well. Yeah. Listeners, do not forget to look out for our news episode later this month. And do let us know what you think about the show. We have Twitter, which is exo underscore cast. We have Blue Sky, which is exocast. We've got Mastodon somewhere out there. We have our website as well, which is open to your comments, exocast.org. So you can find all of our previous shows on there and please do let us know how you feel about the show. You can actually help support the show uh, and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Last month, we have a big thank you to Ralph, Judy and Anonymous for supporting us there. 
You can also get your hands on some ExoCast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, and more at exocast.fredless.com. ExoCast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Dr. Hugh Osborne, a KOPS test postdoctoral fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Dr. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol, and Dr. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck, University of London. Our podcasts are edited by Fergus Hall and are made possible through your kind donations. Find out more on exocast.org. Exocast. I have exoplanets.